Playback. Welcome to Q Playback. It's 1988. I'm 13 years old and I've just been to my local library to borrow uh, a new album from REM, which is called Green. Um, I'm having my mind blown as I'm listening to Orange Crush and thinking about how to get those sounds. Um, as I'm reading the uh, the liner notes for this album, I'm, I'm looking at where it's recorded and it's, it's not New York, it's not Los Angeles, it's Athens, Georgia, and I'm thinking, where the hell is Georgia? I have to pull out uh, an old-style encyclopedia to work out where the hell Georgia is. Um, and little did I know that um, somewhere around that time, uh, a band was jamming in their basement in Georgia, uh, but in Atlanta, Georgia. And today I'm joined uh, by Sharks and Minnows. I'd like to welcome Christopher and Dan. Thanks, guys. Thank you for yeah. having us. Thank you for having us. Uh, so talking about your first jamming experiences, is that, how did you guys first meet and start making music? Well, two separate questions, right? Because it's the, the big gap between. Well, maybe. Okay. Is, is it a big gap? Like uh, is, eighth grade? We met in eighth grade, you and I did. When we were yeah. in 19, 1988, the same time, Chris, that you were listening to Green. Hmm. And I was listening to Green. Yeah, true story. And I was listening. I remember picking that up from Booknuck on cassette. Um, and so we were, we were in uh, in eighth grade together, and in high school, Dan and I both formed bands, uh, but not the not the same ones. I was in a band with um, Chad Spangler, who is our our bass player, uh, you know, one of the founding members of our of of Sharks and Menace. He and I played throughout, I guess, from the time we were 16 until we were 18. And Dan, when did your band start? Oh, January of 93. Yep. Okay, MLK. so right at the end. <laughs> really? Yeah. Hmm. yeah. That was our first practice. Uh, yeah, yeah, January of 93. Um, first show was in July of 93. Uh, everybody was kind of different ages throughout high school. Youngest member was, I think at the time, was in, holy crud, ninth grade? Yeah, Matt was in ninth grade. So that was pretty wild. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, we just wrote some silly punk songs at the time. I uh, just had a lot of fun. I, I did play with you once during that time because I think Andrew got grounded. He did. Yeah. That was, um, 90, 94, I think. Yep. He got grounded. So you, you filled it on guitar. And you practiced with us like hours before the show. I did. I did. I remember having to learn a rage, a rage against the machine song whom I did not like at all, but, um, <laughs> came through for you guys. Um, we appreciate that. and if anything yeah. went wrong, it's just cause it's punk. So, yeah, and, and and that's and um, strangely, I guess in in the aftermath of that, um, we really did get into uh, uh, listening to a lot more like punk rock, American punk rock, um, like Jawbreaker, Jawbox, a lot of the Discord stuff, Fugazi, 
Um, you know, that was that was some of the when we were in our late teens and early twenties. That was some of the stuff that you know Dan and I listened to um, as much as anything else. Mm, yeah. And uh, right when I graduated college, as soon as I graduated, I was stricken with pneumonia. Uh, yeah, and I, I hadn't been in a band since I was eighteen. And I remember lying in bed and just feeling like I was on death's door um, and thinking like, well, if I ever feel better again, I'm going to start a band like that. I, that's, that's what I, I need to do. I remember lying there and listening to records that had just come out, including up by REM right. um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, just Brazil, which was Blake Schwarzenbach from, Jawbreaker it was his band and Bell and Sebastian and uh, the Afghan wigs yep, and just sort of drinking and sunny day real estate and just sort of drinking all this in. And when I finally started writing, when I felt better and started writing new songs, uh, I was like, God, I don't know anyone who plays anymore. Yeah. yeah. And I, I guess uh, the complexity changed as well because it's not just sort of simple punk. It's, moving into, you know, fairly stylized and layered music. So where do you go trying to find someone that's up for that challenge? You're absolutely right. Um, and luckily I knew Dan, um, and we, uh, I, I went to, uh, was it like a reunion show for your punk rock group? Yeah. So I had actually just moved back up from South Florida. Um, so, um, it was like 95, September of 95, or October of 95. I'd moved down to South Florida for about two and a half years um, and just went to school down there and played in bands down there. I was in like two or three bands down there just kind of throughout those years. Um, and then moved back up, what, April of 98 to Georgia um, and tried to get uh, prior to moving down. Uh, and for about a year, I'd had a band with my uh it's my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. Um, and uh, uh, we tried to get that band back together, uh, but just never really had practice space. It was always difficult to come by, and we didn't have money to, to rent a practice space or anything. Um, so we did a couple of practices here and there where we could and ended up doing a, uh, yeah, a quote-unquote reunion with uh, the first band, Evergreen. Um, and, yeah, Christopher, you went to that show, and I think yeah, it was like probably a couple what was that? I said, Chad and I heard about that and he and I had been started. I'd already started talking to Chad about giving it one more go. Cause Chad was in yeah. every band that we've been in. And we were yeah. Like, and then okay. he went to that and called and, uh, so like, yeah, sure. Why not? So it was, uh, yeah, that was January of 99. Wasn't it? It was, that was the first time we practiced. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But we went specifically to recruit you. Yeah. <laughs> First time ever in my life. Because <laughs> you, were, you were very dynamic and you hit hard. And, um, you know, you I guess first and foremost, you were a drummer. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And we needed we drums and we know him. <laughs> and luckily it happened to be you. And so, Dan, you've, uh, as you're just alluding to, you've moved around quite a bit. So that's something we'll come back to in a minute. But I, I want to know what in, in those first rehearsals, those first jams, what kind of gear were you using? What was, uh, as in effects pedals, not the other kind of gear. Um, and yeah, what, what was, you know, getting your attention, um, 
So I guess all the members of the band. Um, I, I suppose the the problem that I had back then is my and Dan will attest to this today is just my uh, technical um, ignorance. And my, what a friend of mine said was, uh, was, was it, uh, what's the expression? Learned ignorance? I forget what it is. When you in, intentionally, like intentional ignorance, something to that effect. Um, the sounds I heard, I could never translate. Because right. I didn't understand pedals very well. I had a delay pedal, like those really chunky boss pedals. Yep. Um, uh, the, 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 bucket brigade um i had a, a, a phaser pedal a chorus pedal and a um and a delay pedal um however because i was such a disciple of fugazi at the beginning i'd read that in Mackay, all he used was the um the distortion from his marshal Right. And so he had one pedal, you know, stomp, yeah. um, and that, and that's it. And so that's, that's what I used. I had at the very beginning, I had a, a Fender Strat that I'd bought when I was 18 and a, uh, solid state Fender amplifier that I never really dug the sound of. Mm. Uh, but shortly after that, to just bite on Ian McKay some more, I bought a Gibson SG and a Marshall. And has that rig stayed with you to today? No, no. <laughs> I uh, it, it, it stayed with me through uh, the band's first incarnation. And by the end, it had just sort of fallen apart. I just uh, not treated it very well. And um, blue, blue speakers, the head kept having problems. The fuse would never, um, would never last more than like a month. Wow. Uh, yeah, I got that thing. I spent so much money getting that thing repaired. I could have bought a new one. But that—that's my gear was very minimal until you know three three years ago or so. Okay. When I finally had money to right. <laughs> as it goes, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. And how about you, Dan? Yeah. So uh, my kit all the way up until two thousand was the CB percussion kit that my parents had gotten for me in 1990. Wow. Was it 1990? Maybe 89. Um, yeah, it's just a Christmas present that year. Uh, so it was a, a five-piece kit and replaced the snare over the years. Found an old Slingerland in, in South Florida that I used um, and got tired of having two rack toms, so I went down to one. Yep. Um just because I could put the, the ride symbol right there in between. That was the spot that I liked. Um, and at some point in 94, I had taken the, uh, taken the white covering off the drums and replaced it with a green velour. So kind of that fuzzy fabric. That's fantastic. So it was just like a, it was a, it was a crappy, terrible job. I just stripped the plastic shell off the, the terrible wood yeah. and uh, just hot glued green velour on the outside and that was my kit for the yeah up until i mean that was our first two records that we recorded with sharks and minnows as well um recorded all other band demos with it lots of shows with with that kit um i did end up replacing it uh i guess it was tax day 
of 2000, I think. So when we got our tax rebate, walked into Guitar Center, big chain for musicians. And uh, they had a uh, uh, Yamaha kit, just the shell pack. And it was just the right price. So that's, that's what I ended up with. And that's what I still have just replacing symbols. And uh, yeah, ended up, uh, it was almost perfect timing when, when we started talking about recording again, because I'd already with the pandemic going on, um, I wanted to be able to practice quieter. So I'd already thought about swapping over to triggers and electronic symbols and all that, just a way to make things quieter in the house. while I could still actually practice Mm. with, four people living in the house at the same time and never able to leave seemingly. Um, and there was that time that, yeah, we just started chatting and it was like, perfect. <laughs> now I've got to ask, um, in the States, do you ever see the, um, children's television show bananas in pajamas? Not familiar with that one. No, but I'm totally down with bluey. Well, <laughs> weird story. Um, so Dave McCormack, who voices the dad in Bluey, um, is from the Australian band Custard and uh, also used to um, be the manager of one of the uh, community radio stations um, in Brisbane. Uh, so the only times I've ever talked to Dave McCormack were not after a gig and not as Bluey's dad, but just when I was trying to get some airtime on uh, Brisbane radio. <laughs> so. Wow, um, but but I'm only I'm asking this question because um, in one of my earlier bands, um, the drummer did the same thing, Dan. That he stripped off all of um, whatever was covering his Pearl Export kit at that time, and he got that vinyl contact um, stuff that you normally put on book binders. Nice in this bananas and pajamas kids motif, and just covered. oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that's really good. I like that one. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, more people should do stuff like that. <laughs> I'm sure it had a, a big impact on the sound. Um, and so, who was in the first lineup of um, Sharks and Minnows? So, obviously, the two of you. Um, yeah, and uh, and Chad, uh, who uh, I met right around the same time as I met uh, Dan, uh, Chad was a just a disciple of rem when i when i met him that is Uh all he listened to um and so we we bonded over that in homeroom since our last names are just a few letters apart um (laughs) and learned that he played guitar the first song i ever wrote was was with him when i was 14. fantastic I could still play it for you. Like, I still remember this, the, the chords. I'm not going to remember the guy's name, but our very first practice, who was the other guy that played with us? Oh, yeah. This guy named uh, uh, Chad Harris, oh, who, I, yeah, yeah. who I'd met in college, who all he wanted to play was Oasis songs. Gotcha. <laughs> and, you know, I there, I like some Oasis songs. Um but then he he decided that he just didn't want to be in a band because originally Chad was going to play a second guitar. Yep. Chad Harris was going to play bass, and then you know you and I were going to do what we do. Yeah. So that was our incarnation until two thousand and three. Yeah. And then my well, brother, just three of us, but not with Chad Harris. So. Right. Yeah. Chad. Just Chad. One Chad was there for like one practice, and then. Dan and Chad and I made 
you know, that EP and our first album and a whole bunch of shows just as a three piece. Okay. Um, and then uh, right around 2003, my brother came on, he'd done some recording with us and I don't think any of us, even me really understood his, uh, ability with, uh, different types of synthesizers and he is a, he loves Rhodes piano. And as, as we've gone on, he's become more atmospheric. Um, I always, I always call, call him the scientist of, of the band. <laughs> uh, so back then it was easy to just, um, get into someone's basement and jam and ride together. But uh, as I was alluding to earlier, these days, not everyone's in Atlanta. It's true. It's that guy right there. Yeah. Dan is now in uh, Washington. Is that right? That's right. Olympia, Washington. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm imagining something like a postal service set up uh, for recording. Um, how has it worked? And it's probably, um, you know, with um, COVID having passed through or still really around, um, it's probably something that more and more musicians have had to try and get used to the idea of, um, you know, how do we write latency kills everything over, uh, um, electronic transfer, especially on zoom here, even with that little delay, it's enough to throw musicians out. So how did it work for the, um, for the, how many, well, were there three players on the most recent release or four? Four. Four. Yep. So how did it work for the four of you? Dan, you want to take your end? Oh yeah, sure. Um, I mean, honestly, it's it's a it's a lot of mixed feelings with it. It has turned out to be really freeing in a lot of ways um, because you don't have that that looming financial crisis of uh, paying for studio time, yeah. <laughs> which is really good. Um, you know, that we're all, we all have our own little quote unquote home studios. So, um, we'll usually get, uh, I'm not really sure how to, how to call the tracks that we get from Christopher. Christopher will have, uh, send tracks to us in a nearly complete way, but just without us. And I say nearly complete because by the time that we've recorded our stuff, he might go back and re-record some stuff because it's just kind of changed. It's almost like a uh, time delayed, uh, evolution with our practices and how we would work together at a practice. Um, I think all of our practices beforehand that we have had as a band, like in person, uh, have really helped this process. Uh, because as I sit down, I, I rarely sit down and just listen to the song and start playing. I'll usually listen to it a few times. Um, and then just start writing a part kind of in my head. It's just how I work. I don't know why. Um, and just kind of thinking about it and have it going through my head. Uh, and then by the time I met the kit, it's pretty close to what I was, what I was envisioning. Mm. Um, and, and I think about like, uh, it's always like, okay, what are the parts that, that I'm going to come up with that are going to make somebody either nod or turn around and look in surprise, uh, uh, and just that general kind of like, Hey, this is pretty awesome. It's all working. So that's what I tend to, to go for. Um, when I'm writing stuff, it's, it's actually surprisingly easy. I just miss being in the same room with them. 
Yeah. But it's surprisingly easy. That's an interesting uh, thing. It sounds like just experience has brought you to that that point of being able to to live with a song and then come in prepared. Um, a lot of my work over the years has been as a producer, you're the extra musician uh, in the band and similar experience that um, I, I get the idea. I probably do three takes of whatever it is. Um, and by the time you've done the third take, you, you know, you've got everything you, you want for the recording. Um, it's not as much fun, but you know, it's, it's one way to do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Playing live in a room, you know, with, with a distorted guitar and, you know, when you first gel on a song, I just, I miss that feel. There's nothing that feels like sort of, you know, um, uh, banging your head to a cymbal crash on a court. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, there's a certain ecstasy of that, and uh, I, I miss that very much. Um, oh yeah, the, the racket, you know, the uh, the sometimes painful volume levels. I miss that. Um, but again, this is this has been an evolution. It's been it's been more refined. But like Dan said, it's still it's still a uh, it's not like a one-way interaction where I say, okay, th this is, this is a song, please play on it. <laughs> um, it's been much more, uh, oh, well, I, well, I'll, I'll say this. One thing I think about when I'm writing is what Dan's going to do. Cause that's always excited me from the first few practices, because even when Dan and I weren't in a band together, I enjoyed watching him play because uh, for one thing, he, Dan has this, he always looks like he's concentrating, like very, very, uh, uh, like very specifically, but he writes, Dan writes such deliberate parts um, that it's like watching someone paint, <laughs> watching Dan play. Uh, he's, he knows exactly where he's going and you can tell that he has really fussed over what he's written. I think Dan is just as deliberate with what he writes as I am. Um, and so when I write, I think about, well, okay, does this give Dan an opportunity to do what Dan does? Mm. Um, because that's the greatest thrill for me is when I get, when I get back Dan's first like drum takes and then I hear I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, this is what the song is. I mean, I guess that's a bit of a testament to having worked together for so long and, um, you know, making space for each other. Do, do you think that goes beyond even just musicality and, um, you know, uh, the relationships you've sustained over such a long time? Yeah. I mean, artistically, I think that we, have a certain degree of ESP. Uh, we, we kind of, we kind of know where the others are going to go. Um, but there are always surprises. You know, if I, if I have a skeleton of a song, the, the, the way the flesh appears on it, um, is kind of where I think it's going to be, but there are always, there are always surprises. Sometimes the beast has a sixth finger. Um, 
so <laughs> speaking of beasts, um, so the new EP, Mermaid Black, seems to allude to a, um, a few different kinds of beasts and uh, creatures. Uh, there seems to be a a playful kind of dark beauty uh, to the EP. Um, what what inspired the writing, and was it something that you're both deliberately going for, or, or were you sort of more on the lead on this one, Christopher? Mm, what would you say, Dan? I oh my god, what oh, the. I'm, I'm going through each of the songs. Spooks is the oldest one on there, at least uh, for what we've recorded, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, that was always the one that I was unsure where it was going to fit in. Um, I I like our explanation for that EP um, that it starts so so deliberately in like a genre, right? It's it's. Uh, Totally, you're starting to listen to the EP, and it's like, oh, this is going to be a nice little pop punk record or whatever. And then it just like shifts gears every time, and the entire EP just feels like it's falling apart in a way well, as you kind of go along. Certainly, on Spooks, from from my money, it it felt like it had this meditative, um, stomping sort of New Orleans vibe. Um, hmm. That, that was my my feel listening to it um almost uh, back to your old voodoo style um you know 50s black and white films oh that's fun yeah i hadn't even <laughs> thought of that because i was listening to a lot of joy division i know that um <laughs> that's <laughs> i don't remember maybe i was listening to the uh was it the no dogs in space uh whether we're talking about joy division and I think it's about the time that I started recording that, and I was like, "Oh man, I love the I love the drum parts there." Um, oh man, what? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm trying to think of anything about the uh, anything deliberate about that album. It it was a it was a lot of fun recording all of those songs because uh, every time I tried to play something that was. It, fairly unexpected um and it surprised me the songs that were that turned out to be my favorites on there i struggled for the longest time with like the simplest song because i just wasn't sure what i was going to play i mean i kind of knew and that's uh, uh i'm ready for my punishment um i always thought that another track would be the defining track on on that ep but that one turned out to be it for me honestly um it's just such a silly part yeah uh but it's very very deliberate and and what i was going for um boy and did chad do the bass on that before i did the drums i'm trying to remember and no no you no, okay yeah yeah i think it just popped into my head one day i'd listen to that track without drums for the longest time and I never sat down to play and i kind of had something in, in mind for a little bit of the chorus but and then I just sat, uh, I, I just sat down and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to play this dumb beat because it just kind of fits. And it's just like, how long can I keep this going? Bah, 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 bah. <laughs> and it just, I was like, this totally fits. This is absolutely perfect. So I'm sure I probably sat down and tried to get that just right about 40 times <laughs> because I'm trying not to give Devin too much work and editing anything. That was kind of the defining track for me. I love all the other tracks on the record, but 
I don't know. I always go back to that one a lot. I don't know why. And, and you just that song actually starts with a, a, a nod to a uh, uh, 60s uh, Australian garage band, uh, the Easy Beats. I was thinking of Friday on My Mind, the ding, 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 you know, that, yep. that, that was, I told Dan that our songs are pretty much just collections of, you know, allusions to other, other songs <laughs> or, you know, historical references, yeah. <laughs> at least for this batch. <laughs> Well, going into that theme um, of other bands that have influenced you, uh, I was having a listen through the um, the back catalogue, and uh, I was really struck by um, Bon Adventure, and between that and I guess some of the, the heavier or fuzzier songs, um, there's certainly like the wall of sound vibe um, thrown in there. Um, but what, another band that stuck out to me, I don't know if you, did you ever hear Ned's Atomic Dustbin? Sure, yeah. Yep. Kill, your t- kill Your Television. That's the one. Great yep. Cell Green. Because um, I, I was thinking of all the, you know, the, the bands that you always think of with the wall of sounds, um, uh, like uh, My Bloody Valentine and Ride. And um, but, and those are important bands to us as, as well. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but, but I think there was something in the, the jangly guitar, maybe that Ned Tommy Dustbin came to mind. Um, it's funny, um, you know, I had that I had that album, Godfather. Yeah. Uh, back, back when it came out, uh, what was that? Is that they have a song called Throwing Things? Like I haven't listened to that album in probably twenty years, but um, yeah, I really I I thought that was that was they had two bass players, didn't they, That's Chris? Right. Yeah, two bass players. That's why I was that. And, rhythm bass player yeah um you know I, I would never cite them as an influence but again there was all that alternative rock that was percolating in the early 90s that mm. was if you were into college rock or um you know just sort of underground post pixies um rock and roll it, it was hard to it was hard to avoid bands like Ned's time that's been they even got played on MTV in the States sometimes I remember yeah yeah looking back at some of that it does seem strange doesn't it that as you say college rock or friends making music together no matter how good or bad or noisy it was mm-hmm. there was a moment when people paid attention and um but it almost seems like MTV is the almost the antithesis of the style of music so. yeah and it's it's funny, my my brother uh, Devin, who's in the uh, is the, the he plays guitar and keyboards. We were talking the other day about how we missed the messiness that was still allowed on the radio back in the '90s, where you could listen to something through headphones and hear like a a channel a channel open and then close in a very messy way. Yeah, um, they added so much ambiance, you know, and so much. Uh, uh, flavor to albums and you just you don't have that anymore not that there aren't beautiful albums being recorded now but uh they are uh i i miss i miss the personality of a lot of those older albums uh so as a lyric writer yourself christopher what are some of the themes that um came through i mean there's there's sort of this almost this southern gothic vibe um 
It, it reminded me of um, the old television show um, American Gothic, which was mm -hmm. a study of sort of um, ethics and good and evil. And um, uh, so, give us a little bit of an insight into your headspace when you're writing. Well, I think lyrics have become more important to me as I as I've gotten older. Um, you know, I I studied a, like a, a lot of philosophy and art, art history and and, and English uh, literature in in school, and so a lot of those things have sort of have stayed with me. Um, and I think I used to write a lot more about relationships, but in the past. Uh, uh, I don't know, three years since, since I started writing again. And I, I seriously hadn't written a song in almost a decade. Mm. Um, I started thinking more about some of the stuff that, that you're, you're talking about, Chris, like, uh, you know, grander concepts like good and evil and, uh, uh, life and the idea of, of an afterlife, uh, you know, God and no God. Uh, and so the idea that there's a sort of Southern Gothic element to it, I actually, it's, it, it's surprising to me. No, no one has ever, no one has ever said that to me before. I, but I think that might be just the newer songs being more specific and lyrically uglier. Mm. Um, the, these are none of these songs that we put out this year are love songs. And it used to be that every song was a love song in, in some way. However tortured, you know, it might be. Yeah. The relationship was always ending for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's always a, um, a difficult step as a writer because you want to write something that's easily relatable and, uh, you know, hopefully a popular theme. Mm -hmm. um, whereas stepping into the world that most of us inhabit most of the time is, is having to confront those ugly themes. Um, mm -hmm. we briefly mentioned some of the, the politics of the United States at the moment before we, um, hit record. Um, I, I don't know how it was for the two of you, but, um, certainly when Donald Trump came through, um, uh, for myself, I felt like there was a shift in what people felt they were allowed to do, how they felt they were allowed to relate to other people, um, in uh, one of the songs on my last album, uh, I had a line that most people pick that is about Donald Trump. Um, and it just says, I never knew you could gaslight a whole country. Um, so how have those politics flowed through for, for you? I, I guess not just in terms of songwriting about good and evil, but in your day to day lives, um, have you, have you noticed the impact of that kind of that style of politics? I think if it's not, I think more than the sort of specifics of really rightist conservatism versus I always say that there's no left in America anymore. Like yeah, Democrats sure. centrists and the left has completely disappeared. Um, what strikes me as a sort of, uh, emerging something emergent in the, in 2016, which is now just firmly rooted here in the States, um, is a disregard for what is real. 
yeah. a disregard for knowledge in the way that we come by knowledge, that what you believe is more relevant than what is. Um, knowledge is what you sort of want it to be. Mm. Um, and can I find this... Can we discuss your day job in that context, Christopher? Is that something you're okay with? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, because I, I, I am a teacher. Um, and that's one of the things I, I have uh, subsequently. And I don't... I, I never frame this as a political thing. Um, but... You know, the idea in philosophy is called epistemology, the study of, of knowledge. Um, how do you know what you know? Hmm. Um, and that definitely feeds into how you articulate an idea, um, how you evaluate a text, be it fiction or nonfiction, uh, news, a newspaper, a film, whatever, um, music even. Um and so, yes, you definitely see a lot of people who spout their, their parents' politics mm. without really thinking about it. And I think perhaps that's natural when you're young to either go along with that or just rebel like hell against it. Yeah. Um, but My either son, way. Um, himself was actually asking more about uh, those themes and uh, I guess how do you how do you combat all of that misinformation? And um, so I, I gave him a, um, a copy of the Chomsky Reader and said, just have a flip through here and start to, <laughs> start to pull things apart. And <laughs> Right. Trudge through Chomsky. Um, yeah, not, not light reading, but um, yeah, if you can get through uh, manufacturing consent, then you're, uh, you know, you you will either be completely turned off to maybe reading in general <laughs> or or the you know the the scales will fall from your your eyes yeah um and so with um this delving into good and evil um was religion something that the two of you um came up with in a strong way um or was it sort of outside your experience growing up Oh, that's a funny story I always get to tell. I don't know if I ever told you this, Christopher. Um, so I, I was actually, uh, uh, well, I grew up in uh, rural North Carolina. What's that? You grew up in a cult. In a cult, yeah. <laughs> Hate to break it to you. <laughs> Still got it going. No, uh, uh, no so uh, rural North Carolina, foothills of the uh, mountains up there. So um, in Lenore. Um, and... Uh, my mom was a not not a big Southern Baptist, but it was important to her. So we went to church. Um, I, I was always bored to tears. I hated it. Um, but the thing that my, my turning point that I remember the most um, was when Jaws three came on Showtime, and the. So I'm the, the Dan, where is this going? Is this the same question? <laughs> Big question. So I didn't want to go to church. That was my turning point. I, I, I stopped going to uh, uh, church pretty much on that day because I wanted to stay home and watch Jaws 3. So religion to me is is kind of like, eh, it's important to people. It is important to, to uh, other people in their lives. But for me, it doesn't really, I, I don't know, it doesn't really weigh at all. Mm. Um, but I, I see the significance in religion for other people as long as they don't abuse it and abuse other people with <laughs> their religions. Yeah, well said. Um, 
that that's the important part for me is like, take from it what you need and let it improve your lives. But you know what? Leave other people alone and stop uh, imposing that will yeah. uh, on others. I've said yeah, you've, ne- you've never told me that, Dan. Um, but I do think it's interesting that you gave up organized religion for a different kind of religion, because this, this is something that still stays with you, right? Like the uh, Jaws 3 in your being a, you know, a disciple, a disciple of film. Yep. Um, not, not as good as Jaws 4, where the jaw, where the, the shark actually seeks out revenge for a human being at some other part of the world, but still, still an important part of the series. <laughs> where do we go from there? Uh, what about you? <laughs> what about yourself, Christopher? Um, it's something I, Dan calls me out on this a lot. Like another song about Jesus, you know, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a Christian. Uh, and, uh, I sometimes say, I don't, I don't sit in pews. I sit on the fence. Um, because I, again, with the whole, the whole knowledge thing, um, I've never had a religious experience. Um, I was raised Christian. I enjoyed going to church. I was a religious studies and philosophy major in college um, because I don't know. And maybe it's the Southern Gothic thing, Chris. I don't I, I, the, the idea of sort of being haunted by God. I remember sitting in church and looking up at Jesus on like the cross on, on uh, uh, stained glass. And he, where I went to church, he just had like the saddest eyes and like I, st- I still think about that of being a, a little kid, and I don't think that was really explained to me uh, sufficiently. And so, I always thought of Jesus as not a, a figure of salvation, but one who was very like sad and lonely. Um, and it also occurred to me later that the fact that he came back to life, that there was something zombie-like yep, about Jesus. Yep. Yeah, which is funny. Hmm. I don't think Dan, I don't think Dan and I ever had that discussion. And Dan made a film called Jesus Age Zombie. Dan made a film? Is it okay for me to say that, Dan? <laughs> no, why did you say that? Yeah. No, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I actually went to school for um, film and video production, and I always wanted to do that until I realized that it was a lot of hours for very little pay and I would never see my family. Um, so you became a musician? That, <laughs> <laughs> that still doesn't pay anything. Um, <laughs> the hours are a lot better. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's totally fine. Yeah, so I, I've helped on a few productions here and there and um, the last one I made was was Jesus Age Zombie. That was 2000. Filmed in 2006 or seven and released uh, like eight months later because I drug my feet forever on editing. Right. <laughs> it, it is rough. After that initial spark of excitement, um, uh, the obviously the editing and mixing and mastering for all of my music falls back to me. And uh, once you've run mixes past a band 10 times and they've all asked for very specific changes um you can lose the joy of it a little bit it really can 
and it's it's a lot nicer now as i i'm falling back into editing for our our next uh music video um it's it's nicer now in the sense that everything's digital and a single file and before the last thing that i shot was on mini dv so it was nine or ten 60 minute tapes yep. that i would have to transfer each one over and make sure to look at the shot log and write down the time codes on each tape that i needed and oh that's such a laborious process um but you can get lost in all those little digital files even even audio uh audio wise just just doing that and i am envious of Devin who does all of this for us, uh, much, much like you, uh, just in having that mindset of being able to do that, because I think I would probably just like close the laptop and walk away and <laughs> it would take six months for one song. You've you got to have regular coffee breaks for sure. Um, yeah. and so some of the, um, the video clips for sharks and minnows, is that your work, Dan? You know what? All of the ones that are on like Instagram and whatnot—that's that's pretty much Christopher. Okay. He's kind of taking that and run with it. Um, I've the the ones that I his are more serious than mine. Mine are like dumb. <laughs> I just do dumb videos. <laughs> I try to grab attention, but you know Christopher's out there actually being artistic and and whatever else. Um, yeah, no, I I find like weird latex cat puppet heads and do casting calls for our videos. Um, and Christopher's all serious about it. Please come and help us. And I've got a stupid cap of it. <laughs> uh, but, it, but it worked out fine. I think, you know, I don't know if the cat puppet, uh, lended to lint, if it lent to the, uh, um, you know, the, tur the turnout we got, but I'm very, very proud of this, uh, this video that, that we've made and, and Dan's currently editing, um, it's a Christmas song. <laughs> And, uh, it's Jesus again. Right. Um, uh, which will, I think we're going to sort of soft release it, um, to streaming services, uh, on November 1st, and then we'll have the, the video up with sort of what, what we're calling a maxi single, um, with some different versions of the song and uh, a pop song that we recorded, but, um, didn't really fit anywhere. Uh, that'll be out in the middle of the month, probably. Right. Does it have a title yet, or is it? Uh, do we have to wait for that? Um, it's called "It's Christmas and You Hate Christmas." Excellent. Um, yeah, I uh, in the in the first. It was actually in the first batch of songs I wrote because I always wanted to to write a Christmas song because I really like the that Phil Spector uh, Christmas um, album, and um, so uh, the Wall of Sound. Yep. trying to do something like that again um and I, I i tried to write the lyrics as sort of like as like a like almost i, know, I was thinking of like cole porter right. just making a lot of like clever trying to be, make clever references uh to other songs to like other christmas songs and to like last christmas by wham and um so lyrically, I'm I'm very proud of it. Um, do you guys well, play musically, Wham I'm sorry. Do you guys play Whamageddon? Wham Whamageddon. You haven't heard of Whamageddon? No, please. Maybe it's, it's an Australian thing. thing. So, 
Now, the way Whamageddon works, um, and maybe you can extend it to, to your single, is that um, the game begins on the first day of December, and you have to try and make it through to Christmas Day without having heard Last Christmas by Wham. If you hear it, <laughs> like you hear it on the TV, hear it at the shops when you're out, then you're knocked out of the game. <laughs> So I think I think that's a new tradition that should be moved up to uh, Sharks and Minnows uh, with his new single. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, we, I'm. I, God, that sounds almost impossible. But um, it's like the game where you have to not think of the game. Um, yeah, in the in the video, we actually have uh, a guy who impersonates George Michael. Wow. Um, for some reason that was very important to me um, it was very important i remember hearing about that I remember yeah that I, I couldn't i couldn't figure out a title i record everything like in little voice memos and mm. I, i'll post this to social media at some point but i have this list of titles and one of them was like smoke crack christmas <laughs> bullshit christmas um you know there's just couldn't quite figure out where to where to, where to go with it um <laughs> um but yeah i think it's it it's probably the most deliberately poppy thing that we've we've ever written it's very much it's very much a, a pop song if you were to listen to that first ep with bonaventure and sleeping sickness on it and then played this thing i don't think you could make a thread Mm. But between them, it's it's just it's too too drastic of a jump if you hadn't heard some of the connective tissue in between. Yeah, and that was something I was going to ask about. So the last few EPs have happened uh, relatively quickly compared to um, recordings before that. Um, how did you? F you talk about the the EPs being uh, like a trilogy. Um, was there a certain was was that planned from the beginning? Was it just an organic way that the songs sort of um, gelled together um, thematically? Uh, and does that mean we're going to be getting more and more music over the next few years, or is there going to be another 10, 15 year break? Or three releases and um, fifteen years off. That's right. <laughs> Uh, we'll we'll see you during uh, uh, Donald Trump's fourth term in office when he when he comes back with all the QAnon folks and um I don't think the, the I wish I didn't know what you were talking we, about what's that I wish I didn't know what you were talking about oh yeah yeah you got you got QAnon QAnon folks in in Australia I I recently read about that it, it's terrifying even i'm in um an inner city suburb of melbourne which is very progressive left and even here i've seen bumper stickers yeah yeah it, it's a it's a worldwide movement of anti-intellectual faith or something not that there's again i'm, I'm not i'm not dissing faith I, I tell people tell my students sometimes that uh you know, one of the one of the reasons that I think it's probably dangerous to prove the existence of God is that it would it would there's no need for faith anymore. 
And if there's no need for faith, there's no reason for religion or spirituality or anything like that. But that's beside that's I guess that's off topic. Yeah. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna put out an album next year, and um, one of the things when I started writing songs again in the fall of 2020, um, I was thinking a lot about. I guess like the time when, when the Sharks first started playing together and um, particularly of a, you know how like there's some relationships that just like they need to end. They like that they just need, they, they've run their course. I keep, I think f from time to time about a relationship that I was in uh, that I just, uh, really messed up and so and perhaps i need more therapy to let go of this but i just wrote about god 25 30 songs about i think i told you guys like it, the they have a setting and it's atlanta georgia and it has a time span and it's 1999 to 2003 and all of the songs that we released this year were not that because huh. um, the album is the album will be very thematic whereas i don't think these eps are as much except like you pointed out i think this i think mermaid black is um uh and now chris i've completely forgotten your original question uh, i guess i was just uh yeah wondering if or a if there's oh. something that binds the EPs together and um and have answered that there's going to be more music on the near horizon so yeah. mm -hmm. but we, I don't think we decided that there were going to be three EPs at the beginning I think we were just giddy to get the first one out after so long yeah yeah I yeah. I, I seem to recall conversations about it was going to be an EP and then an LP uh this year and somehow it just happened that maybe we were anxious to get stuff out uh and maybe it was uh really not able to put a lot of the songs that were on those three eps together to uh make an lp that made sense right because i can't really i'm mean, thinking back to those three eps i can't really place any of those like put more songs on say like mermaid black to make that an lp or on uh, uh magenta to make that an lp like none of these songs really fits together in the way that they might have on say like our our last lp um uh cost of living right like they were all very different mm. but maybe we had played them enough together that they made sense in my head i guess that they all just kind of sense. Yeah. Yeah. But I can't really, I mean, we, we could probably force something, but I can't really think back and, and make an LP out of those, those three LPs. And maybe it was just necessity. It was, it was like, Hey, let's put something else out. And, uh, we've got these five songs ready. These have drums on them. <laughs> let's go. <laughs> yeah. uh, one thing I, um, I always ask of our guests, um, is, is there, uh, what, what was your most desperate moment of innovation when something went wrong at a gig or something went wrong recording? Um, 
a piece of gear malfunctioned? Was there some way that you had to overcome a crisis in the moment that really stands out to either of you? I had to sober up quickly. Oh. <laughs> I think before a show, that was sometimes a problem. <laughs> uh, but we had no innovative, innovative cure for, uh, for, for, for that. Uh, I'm trying to think, Dan, can you think of anything? I'm trying to think of a, of a crisis. Uh, you know, the one that always stands out to me is I, I think it was the star bar show. Maybe the second time we played there wasn't the one we have a recording of maybe. Um, I don't know. Uh, nothing that like failed spectacularly, but this one always just stands out in my head because it seemed like it took forever for you to pick up your guitar but like the strap failed on your guitar and your guitar oh, just goes boom, flat strings down on the stage. And I feel like you stood there and looked at it for probably 15 minutes. And I know it was just like three or four seconds, but I was like, Oh no, Christopher, I felt so bad for you. Yeah. I felt, I, I do remember that. Um, it was, yeah, I remember that it was right after George Bush was elected. Cause I remember trying to, while well, I was tuning the guitar, which took forever, I rattled it so much. I remember trying to like make Dick Cheney jokes and I just made this situation more awkward. <laughs> um, yeah. That's that, so, yeah. That. There are some, I think some really embarrassing moments. Um, there's certainly songs that fell apart that one of the problems we've always had is as soon as we wrote a song, we wanted to play it. Um, and I know that sometimes probably frustrated the little label, um, that we were on because as soon as we got done with an EP, we didn't want to play the EP anymore. Yeah. You're not going to go on the, the promo tour for a year and a half. Right. Yeah. So we just, so here's, but here's our, I think at our, at our CD release party and our, our CD had 16 songs. I think we played maybe six of those songs and six ones that no one had ever heard before. <laughs> Cause we're impatient. Uh, and are you still with that label? <laughs> Um, I don't know if John, it, uh, it was run by this guy named John Graham, who's just an amazing person. Um, I don't, is he still putting out stuff, Dan? I don't, I don't know. No, he hasn't in maybe about 10 or 10 or 13 years, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a little while. I can't remember the last release he put out, but it just got expensive for him, you know, putting those CDs out and everything's kind of changed. It'd probably be easier for him now. I was burned I think... by too many impatient bands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe so. Um, yeah, I think we were, and perhaps that's why I don't think we were ever really the tightest band in the world. Uh, some of our label mates, they played the same eight songs almost every every time. Yeah. Um, and we, I think we were trying to be at least um in spirit like bruce springsteen in uh you know have a have a sort of uh repertoire of, of 60 songs and you know hey let's play this one let's play this one and except we did not we didn't have the uh i think the work ethic or resources that that bruce springsteen has and so yeah it's pretty we were yeah yeah so we're like yeah hey, we'll play this one we haven't played in two years why not
and we realized like halfway through, no one knew how to get to the chorus. <laughs> Excellent. And that like that that was a problem more than once. We we're not good learners either. Which is are you talking about me like this? <laughs> talking about me like this? Oh, okay, there's a we in there. <laughs> a lot of times I was like, "Hey guys, I have to do this. <laughs> Follow me into this dumb idea, please." I must admit, I have said to band members, uh, "What key is this in again?" Uh, and as the primary writer, that's a bit of a, a tell. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So, so what are some important things you do think you've learned, even if you aren't good learners, what's something um, for each or collectively that you've learned in all the time you've played together? I think for me, I've learned where other people's space is. Um, and the necessity of, and I think this is just coming from, from a point of trust, uh, because when, when we first started out, I'd write a song and, you know, kind of, kind of have in my mind what, what it was going to sound like, but also not really care what, what the other guys did. Um, and then I think my backlash to that was to be kind of overly concerned, um, with, with the direction a song took, but over the, I guess in the, in the time that we weren't playing, and maybe this is just part of growing up, the sort of trust that I developed because Dan and and Chad and Devin's my brother, of course, but, uh, we've always said that if ever some sort of, we'd reach some point where it was either our friendships or music, then we, we would destroy the band immediately mm -hmm. that our friendships are too important. Yeah. Um, and I know that that's, that's a really pretty thing to say, but it's, it's 100% true. And I think it's the the level of trust um, that we've developed with each other. It's just, and that's what's made me recognize not just the the space where like Dan's Dan is a drummer, where where he goes into this creative process, but also like Dan as he's someone I love. You know, Dan is is as someone who I've known almost all my life. Um the the trust and the compassion the brotherhood hmm. um, that has become increasingly important for me oh that's really beautiful. ditto no i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah uh, you you've said a lot of the things that i would honestly say too um i don't, I don't know if i ever told you but the time that like that we you know weren't playing like in between other things um i always look for people to play with right and i'll see like uh calls for drummers or, or whatever else or have friends that wanted to play and 
always, uh, every time sat down at the kit and they started playing. I'm like, oh, I wish they would uh, play and sing songs like Christopher every single time. I was like, this isn't working. It's, it's not me. It's you. Uh, <laughs> um, but that, that was totally it. Uh, I, I came close to it one time with somebody, but it still wasn't the same. Uh, and so I just kind of gave up until, yeah, until 2020 when we started doing this again. And that was like, everything started flooding back. And it was like all the things that you mentioned, uh, were just there again. And you just realize, yeah, this is pretty much, pretty much it. I, I don't think that if, um, uh, if, if Sharks and Minnows wasn't a band, I wouldn't be playing with anybody else. I'd just be going through all the silly songs that I have on my playlist to play through a thousand times, all the J church songs and Sunday day real estate songs and lush songs. That's pretty much what's in my playlist. <laughs> well, um, Sharks and Minnows, Christopher and Dan, thanks so much for making time to come on and chat with me today. Um, was there anything that you wanted to plug before we wrap up today, aside from obviously the, um, the new EP, Mermaid Black and the upcoming Christmas song? Uh, I, I suppose the, the video, um, which we, we've never made like a professional video before. So we're, we're really uh, thrilled that, that this is coming out. So that will be, you know, on, on YouTube and um, we'll cut it up into snippets for all the other social media whoring that I'm sure we'll do. Um, <laughs> and is and then, you know, the, the best place to find you at the moment? Sure. I mean, you know, however people get to us for whatever route they take. Um, yeah. What do you, what do you think, Dan? You're more savvy with this than I am. Well, I mean, where are people in, gosh, I mean, we're on Facebook and Instagram and threads and we have a, a link tree, I guess probably just a sharksandmenos.band will get you to a portal for a lot of these things. Yep. Um, yeah. And we're on all the social things and some form or another. And we have shirts and stuff. Oh, we do have shirts. You know, we don't have a table by the door on your way out. We do, we do have merch. Well, once again, guys, thanks so much for making time. And um, yeah, I'm loving the new EP. Um, and as always, I'll sign off with There's Magic in the Mystery of Not Quite Knowing What You're Doing. Thanks, everybody. Cue playback.